You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, it's Island Adventures, DigiTaiwan, Climate Crunch, The Download, and Taiwan Today. Don't go away. is a beautiful island with so much to offer. So let's go explore it. Come check out Taiwan's must-see spots with me, Emma Banak, on Island Adventures. Hello and welcome to another episode of Island Adventures. Today I'm excited because I'm not just going to be talking about one of my own adventures. I'm here to talk about one of my friend's adventures. Please welcome Shirley. Hi there. Yes, this is Shirley Lin. I'm actually Emma's colleague, but I've been to this place that she wants to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I. it's pretty hard sometimes to find people who have been to this place in Taiwan. I wouldn't say it's extremely rare, but it's definitely one of the more difficult places to get. And I agree. This place we're talking about is Penghu. So talking about how to get there, Shirley, did you take a boat or did you take a plane to get to Penghu? Uh, we took a plane. It was my husband and I. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I have to say the plane ticket is not cheap, mm -hmm. but it's really definitely worth the trip. Mm -hmm. So Penghu is one of the several islands off the coast of the main part of Taiwan. And I guess it's the biggest grouping of islands. The other ones are more just a single island like Xiaoliuqiu or uh, Orchid Island, Green Island. But Penghu is made up of several different islands, correctly? Okay. Yes. Something like, is it in a thousand, a thousand Really? Oh, don't quote me. No, I could be wrong. <laughs> it's all good. Did you stay mostly on the main part of Penghu then, or did you do some island hopping? No, yeah, just main island. Um, I, I didn't go island hopping. I think it was only just for three days and two nights. I couldn't remember. It's been years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's a memorable trip. Yeah, so. what were some of the most memorable things that you did while you were there? Um, the cheap seafood, cheap and delicious seafood. Ooh, I that's mean, the it was best just, combination. Oh, it was just amazingly cheap and just so fresh and so delicious. Mm -hmm. I don't quite remember what we had, but I remember our friends who actually own a B&B there. They brought us to this restaurant. Mm -hmm. It's not even a fancy restaurant. And, um, but, uh, I'm sure they know, you know, you know, the locals would know where's the best, even though there's like a rundown restaurant kind of mm -hmm. thing, but it was so good. And I remember the next day, um, my husband and I, we did not know the ad address, but we managed to find it again. Oh, I thought this was going to be a sad story. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's great. You found it. We found it again. We had another just wonderful dinner, just the two of us this time. Yeah. It was just great. Oh, was it like sashimi or was it cooked fish? Um, you know, I'm not so much into sashimi anymore, but I'm sure we did have sashimi then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, everything's so fresh. I mean, you shouldn't really go for raw fish. I don't honestly don't quite remember, but we had all kinds of seafood, honestly. That's so interesting because, you know, I've had sort of, I feel like a mixed experience of having seafood on some of Taiwan's smaller islands. I've only been to Green Island and Xiaoliuqiu, and I think I've had some good seafood in both places, but 
I love sashimi and I really thought those would be the places to try it. And maybe I just wasn't at the right restaurants, but I was a little disappointed. Um, so just hearing like, even if you're not a huge sashimi, sashimi fan that you had some there and it was good. That gets me super excited. And mm. that's awesome that it, like what you went to wasn't necessarily considered a super fancy restaurant, but that you can still get really good quality food there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, usually it's those, you know, like tucked away restaurants that I trust the best food, I think. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm, I'm, you know, come to think of it, I think I'm almost sure I had sashimi because, you know, it would have been a wise thing to do, you know, to yeah. get like fresh seafood and so fresh sashimi. So otherwise you're missing a lot. Do you know if Penghu, I know it's been a while, but do you know if Penghu has any sort of specialty foods? Like I know in Sialiocho, when I was there, this isn't, I don't think it's like a specialty food, but like everywhere you go, you'll see these mahuajun, like these little candies, uh, I mean, breaded candies. Mm-hmm. Or like when you go to Orchid Island, they have flying fish everywhere that you can get and stuff. Oh. Does, does Penghu have anything like that? Or it's more just seafood in general is all just... Well, I would specialty. say seafood in general, but I know that one of the popular um, pastime was actually to go squid fishing. Squid fishing. Yeah. Oh, wow. And okay. it's in the nighttime. Mm-hmm. But you know what? My husband and I didn't do that, though, on mm-hmm. that trip. Um, but it's like the thing to do. Really? And it's to go out at night mm-hmm. and then get on these boats. And um, and then they'll, you know, they'll go out to sea. And then they'll turn on the lights. And that's how you can, you know, like squid fishing. And I would assume that the squid would be like a very popular dish there, considering yeah. squid fishing is so popular that there. That makes sense. I wonder, <laughs> is it just like the squid, are they attracted to light and that's why they I do would it at think night or so. something? Yeah, mm. I would think so. So, Are you a big fan of squid? Yeah, yeah. If it's fresh, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, they can be really good. I mean, just like, what, what is it? You kind of like just um, blanch them? in hot water and then just eat it with um, wasabi and soy Mm -hmm. sauce oh gosh I'm getting hungry oh no yeah I don't think I've had my (laughs) lunch yet but uh, I actually had a friend telling me about their first experience a week ago eating fresh squid in Taiwan and they said like it looked like the squid had been alive a second ago and then they just blanched it kind of in the water and then took it out and said okay you're all ready to go just one thing is be careful when you eat it like you don't want to chew on it too much because apparently you know there's still ink inside of the squid so you might end up with black ink all over your mouth right you're supposed to pull it out about right you're supposed to pull it out first and uh, along with that's one vertebrae right you're supposed to pull that out and the squid whatever Mm -hmm. it's their stomach I don't know. I don't even know. Uh, it's it's a satch, right? Yeah. Sack. Yeah. I mean, I've never gone squid fishing either, but I have gone shrimp fishing, which is a pastime that I only discovered in Taiwan. I only did it once. They it's not really Taipei for me. Too. They do. Have you yeah. done it? Uh, yes. What did you think? Um, um, well, you know, because they kind of cheat on it because they actually throw a lot of shrimp in there, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. actually these poles, man-made poles, mm-hmm. um, you know, if people are wondering. And um, and then you, it was very easy to just be able to catch some shrimp. But I think the best part is is grilling right there. They mm-hmm. have these long grills, and you can just eat it. With, oh, so good! You know, nice and crunchy grilled shrimp. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, hearing you say this, I feel a little uh, worse about my fishing skills because you say, "Oh, you know, they throw lots of shrimp in there." So you, <laughs> I didn't catch a single one. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were surrounded by people who, like, they said that they went to the shrimp fishing place. I don't know, like. 20 times a month or something so they were clearly the experts and they were catching tons of things my friends and I just weren't quite lucky but I feel like literally everyone there except me got at least one shrimp and I do like eating shrimp but to be completely honest I was a little 
turned off uh, by actually being there and seeing like, you know, you have to kind of prepare the shrimp yourself. I mean, you can choose to either like directly give the shrimp to the kitchen at the uh-huh. shrimp fishing place and they'll cook it for you. But then the locals, they were like, oh, you have to try at least to cook some of them yourself. And they're like, this is how you do it. And so they pull out this pair of scissors. They're like cutting off the shrimp's legs. They're like sticking a, a stick right through it. And the shrimp is alive for all of it. So I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. I mean, obviously I know that I was eating a living thing, but I just... I didn't really need to picture all of that in front of me. So mm. I've not been back to a shrimp fishing place once, but I'm intrigued by squid fishing. <laughs> yeah, you got to be. Yeah. So um, besides all that, like, did you get to go scuba diving or snorkeling or swimming while you were in Penghu? No, actually, we kind of avoided all the water activities. But one thing I really, um, really enjoyed was renting a scooter. Oh, and nice. um, I don't know how to drive a scooter, but my husband does. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't, but you know, you remember. Mm-hmm. And so it it was during the summer. It was really, really hot, but it's not as humid as Taipei. Mm-hmm. And the sun was just like, you know, burning on my thighs as I was sitting. Oh. And I didn't mind it, you know, like getting a sunburn that night and everything. But it was just awesome feeling mm-hmm. without the humidity. And we drove um, all the way out to the beach. Ooh. And just wonderful. Just wonderful. Oh, that sounds great. I mean, I'm surprised you were like, oh, I was okay with the sunburn, but uh, <laughs> I burned super easily. But yeah, oh. it, it gets so humid in Taipei that I feel like it adds, I mean, I don't know how many degrees Celsius, but I feel like it adds 15 degrees Fahrenheit to what yeah, the actual temperature does. is. Yeah. Yeah. So I've wanted to go to Penghu for a while, but I guess it is closer to Taipei. When I was living in Tainan, it's just kind of far from there. And oh. I heard that they actually were opening more ferry services to Penghu. Like they were having one actually from Tainan. And I remember being kind of excited about that. But I feel like, I mean, I don't know exactly what the price difference is between ferry and plane. But I think I would do the same as you taking a plane there because I've had some bad ferry experiences going to do other islands. Do you get islands. seasick? I never thought I would get seasick. Oh. I mean, I don't I don't have a ton ex- of experience being on boats. Like, I have been on a cruise ship before, and I know that's kind of different. Yeah. But, like, I'd taken a ferry to Xiaoliuqiu, which is, I mean, only maybe a half-hour ride or something. But when I took the ferry to... I went to Green Island. I took the ferry there. Everything was fine. Then took the ferry back, and there was a bit more of a storm, so the waves were bigger. And I just, oh, no. I didn't take like medicine to get mm. on the boat because I was like, I don't want to unnecessarily take medicine. I've been fine on boats before. But literally everybody on the ship was throwing up, and it yeah. was so bad. Oh my God. So I feel like I, I would just try to avoid that at, at all costs, ever reliving that sort of experience. Mm. Well, do you suppose a boat ride to Penghu would be kind of a long ride uh, as opposed to plane? So I don't. I feel like it would. Yeah. I think so. the plane taking a plane is really the more popular, or you know, the the, the way to go yeah. to get a Penghu. Especially like it must be a lot closer from Taipei. Mm. And did you say that Penghu is the only island that you've been to yeah, in Taiwan? Yeah. Oh, okay. But um, um, I think so. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I think I'm almost sure. Yeah. But um, I remember another thing is like um, visiting like these small old streets, I guess, mm-hmm. and just looking at all the little shops on Penghu, and there were like these jewelry st- shops and everything, and and um, it was just really nice because actually, um, you know, the the a friend of ours who owns the B and um, B, she had a friend who's actually a Hakka jazz singer, Ooh, and she was there with her friend, so the four women. Uh, we went and just kind of like, you know, window shopping and walked around. That was very nice. And mm-hmm. they have a lot of like, you know, handmade stuff, 
So do you think you would ever go back to Penghu if you got the I chance? I would. Mm-hmm. I would. You know, after that trip, I kept telling myself, this is one place I would really want to go back again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, I, it, it was an uh, you know, unforgettable trip. Um, so I, I don't get impressed that easily, but mm-hmm. Penghu was. I guess for its seafood, but also just the sun, you know, less the humidity, you yeah, know, yeah. the beaches. And maybe next time we'll try the squid fishing. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like the thing to do, apparently. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Island Adventures. You're most welcome. Yeah, so if you're tuning in, obviously you can tell Penghu is definitely worth checking out. Uh, I'm Emma Banak. Tune in again next week for my next island adventure. Bye. Digi Taiwan, digital art and entertainment in Taiwan. Welcome to Digi Taiwan. Today we have the third and final part of my interview with Vladislav Cypriak. In this riveting conclusion, we find out if the butler did it, uh, but mainly we talk about publishing video games in China and the problems associated with that. In case you've forgotten, Vlad is the co-founder of Neon Doctrine, a video game publisher focusing on Asian developers. Don't go away! As is the case with movies, books, music, and literally every other medium, publishing video games in China is a bit of a challenge, to put it mildly. Only a handful of titles in each of the categories I just mentioned gets approved for release. They also have to conform with strict and sometimes odd content requirements, like no time travel, in case someone starts daydreaming about going back in time without party approval. Boy, authoritarians would be hilarious if the fates of so many people didn't hinge on their whims. Most video games are sold digitally these days. Instead of getting your software on a physical medium, you pay for it online and then download it at your leisure. This makes it very convenient for consumers, but it means it's also easier to control, alter, or even ban content. By far the biggest video game distribution platform currently on the market is Steam, owned by an American company called Valve. Steam is not yet technically banned in China like many other Western platforms, but it certainly doesn't work the same way there as it does everywhere else. Let's hear what Vlad had to say on that topic. You you bring a lot of games to China as well. Uh, I found your tweet uh, from December last year when you said that a Chinese ban on Steam is not a question of if but a question Question of of when when. yeah yeah i keep Uh, saying that can you expand on that what do you mean by? oh boy um right so steam has been partially banned in china for the past like five six years like so 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 the discussions in the forum parts of the community uh is completely blocked so the chinese players they can't access all of the forums of the games so it doesn't matter if they use the vpn or if they don't use the vpn 
that's why a lot of games that do you know Chinese uh, simplified Chinese localization and they do some sort of PR marketing push into China to get the sales they always get a lot of negative uh, reviews from China the reason is because that's the only way the Chinese players can communicate with the developers if something is broken or there's a bug or something needs to be fixed because they can't access anything else. So normally, you know, if you reply to those reviews, you're nice and, you know, you fix the stuff, then they swap them to positive. Just It's just the only way for them to communicate with the developers. So recently, yeah, there was like this whole thing that people were, were scared that they finally banned it, but they, they kind of blocked the, um, the web page part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they unblocked it. And then now it's like sometimes it takes like three, four minutes for people trying to refresh to get to the web page, but the client insel- itself still still works. It, it's always been in, in, in a gray area. Obviously, it's all speculation because you know, somebody's probably been fighting f- to keep Steam alive in China. Mm-hmm. And they did launch uh, Steam China about a year, two years ago. Uh, no, a year ago, a year ago. Yeah, yeah a year ago uh, with, with you know Valve and Perfect World working together. But th- that one, that platform is bare bones. Like uh, most of the features are torn out. So you don't have any community part there as well. And for the reviews, you can only see the simplified Chinese reviews. And it's it's only has like right now, I think like 80 games mm-hmm. compared, you know, the, the, the millions of games Steam has. Right. So it's, it's very difficult to get a game on there. And if you're a foreign developer, you won't be able to get it. So the way it's probably going to happen is going to be it's going to go down the same way it happened with Facebook and Google and Twitter and stuff in China like they're not going to like outright ban it right away they're just going to slowly phase it out mm-hmm. like they've been doing uh, for a while like you know m- removing certain features and then also they're throttling the download speed of of certain games and then you can buy some games well I mean you can buy all of the games they implemented the local currency and payment platforms but some of them you can't download. <laughs> so you buy the game, the game is in your library, but it just never downloads. Oh, wow. So certain titles are, are, are blocked that way. So probably in the future, like, you know, it's, they're gonna slowly phase it out or make it for users, make it such a hassle to be so inconvenient to use the platforms that they will just have no option but to swap uh, to, to something else. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if, it, if they weren't planning of closing it down, why would they spend all this money and resources to make a Steam China mm-hmm. separate thing? So eventually it's gonna happen. We just, just don't know when, you know. It could be now, could be in a year, could be in five years, could be in three months. So it's, it, with China, it's always... It's always uh, they're very unpredictable. <laughs> That's right. There are other avenues uh, for selling video games in China. There are other online platforms. Uh, there's EGS, the Epic Game Store. Uh, have, are you selling your games on Yeah, EGS? yeah. We, we, we have a few on EGS. Uh, you also have, you know, the Wii game platform from Tencent. And then you have, like, Cube, uh, Funquai. And, and there's a bunch of other stores. They always pop, pop up and then they shut down and they pop up under another name. Uh, and then you have a lot of key reseller websites. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can generate Steam keys and then you contact them and sell them the keys and they sell those in China. And then you have the Taobao accounts, mm-hmm. the Chinese eBay or Shopee or whatever you call it, where you can buy also Steam keys or you can buy Steam accounts that are set in a different region so you can buy games for cheaper, like, you know, certain regions like, Russia, India, Argentina, stuff like that. And then you can also buy Steam accounts with already games preloaded on them. Mm-hmm. So that's another way that the, the system works. They also do it for like Nintendo and, and, and PlayStation and, and, and Xbox because for Nintendo Switch China, all of the consoles come region locked. 
Uh, so you only have the Chinese store, and the Chinese store has like man, like eight or ten games on it, <laughs> and you can't swap the store, so wow. so you're stuck. Uh, yeah, so the, 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 there's like all these different uh, kind of like bypasses they're doing uh, on their marketplace. <laughs> so in a word, it's a ha- hassle to publish games in China. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It especially if you don't have an actual presence there, and you know you you don't speak the language, and and you know there's huge cultural differences when it comes to doing business and not just video game publishing like just yeah general how things work there or how you approach media and influences is also very different compared to how all of this works in the western media so yeah completely different mindset and you mm-hmm. need to have somebody on the ground and if you actually want to publish yourself and not go through a third party uh you need to have like a, a, a chinese company so in, in our case we do because that's where we started but like uh, you know for a foreign publisher or a developer who's not based in china or you know somewhere else uh they just can't do it just the government won't allow it uh and with the regulations and then the situation right now like none of the games will be able to get released on any of the local platforms because mm-hmm. that, that, that whole process of uh approval of getting the banhao the gapp number uh, the, the censorship approval uh, is stopped again uh, for like the fifth time in like two years. I always say like if you know if, if like Capcom or Bandai or Bungie or anybody else they can't get their AAA games through this system to be published in, to be released in China like some other shady publisher or PR company that says they can. Well, they're, they're probably lying to you because <laughs> you just yeah. you just can't. Like it's, it's 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 impossible. It's even complicated now for the Chinese developers because again the process is halted and when it wasn't halted it was like 70 or 80 games every quarter that got approved and like 60 of them are mobile and there were maybe like three console games and maybe like five PC games mm-hmm. and that, that's it yeah does that mean that uh, local games are receiving more attention since a lot of competition from western developers western publishers can't get through the quote unquote China firewall when it comes to local platforms in Steam China, then yeah, absolutely no doubt. Because if you go to it, out of foreign games, I don't think they're the only foreign games you have there are mostly like big MMOs, like you know Final Fantasy fourteen got the license. You know, Monster Hunter World had the license until the movie came out, and they make that uh, terrible joke about the knees. And then the movie got blocked in China and the game got removed from all of the store platforms. So yeah, like you said, when it, when it comes to that type of competition, there really isn't none for, for Chinese developers mm-hmm. uh, to fight against the Western ones. But the problem is they still can't get their games on the platforms right now. What they're trying to do, they can still release their game on, on Steam Global. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't put it on local platforms and they don't put it on Steam China, but they still... Uh, most of the developers there don't 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 have uh, an idea or connections or the grasp how publishing in the West works because you know mm-hmm. well, again language barrier cultural differences and you know they've never done it before so they don't know what they're doing and there's another issue is that while they can still publish on Steam Global later on if they want to get a local government license they they're gonna be in a uh, it's gonna be very troublesome like they either have to be pay a lot of fines or take down their games and reapply so it, it's very 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 mafan yeah very 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 annoying so for them it's like a risk reward type of thing like do we wait when it opens up but nobody knows when it opens up or do we just release it on global steam and see see how it does mm-hmm. 
do you think that this atmosphere, this whole environment in China, and when you compare it to the environment in Taiwan, does that mean that fewer grassroots developers, small developers, indie developers uh, emerge in China just because they see all the hurdles that they have to jump over? As opposed to here, where you develop a game and you can publish it with relative ease. Well, it depends, right? I, I would imagine that it's gonna. I mean, it's not even imagine like already a bunch of studios shut down because they can't release video games. So it is already happening in China, where where they just can't support themselves and they can't do anything. So they have to shut down their studios and and close close clo- no not, not finish their games. So yeah, uh, it, it is going downhill from there. It, it is quite funny because when we started up, the PC gaming was almost non-existent, like the local development team, uh, team uh, scene. Mm-hmm. And then it started growing after the success of few games, and more and more developers kept popping up. And you actually saw like really cool games being made in China. But now the government is starting to squash it all again. So you see less and less new studios popping up, and you know less and less people getting interested in this because they're like, oh my god, this is so troublesome. I can't I can't do anything. I can't release here. I can't release there. And, you know, I have to wait for like years to get this government approval, which may be or maybe not coming. So, yeah, it, 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 they are squeezing the industry right now. So, so the active players are the ones who were successful in the past and they still have just enough capital to keep going and, and see what happens or just, you know, do it in the West because they have the connections and experience. But when it comes to like newcomers or, or, or you know, new young developers trying to kickstart their career, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> Do you think that Taiwanese publishers or just publishers in general started self-censoring in order not to lose access to Chinese market? Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I, I get asked this a lot and it, it, it really depends. It, it's, it's not more as like self-censor i mean in taiwan the taiwanese developers no they don't they don't really care they just they just, they just do it uh for us in our case it's just making sure there's nothing that can jeopardize our own team in china because we we we, ha- we have still people in china who, who who you know handle all the people who do all the publishing as well so we can't just like you know, screw them over uh but we don't censor it's just to make sure that there's nothing that can you know upset uh the government uh, when, when it comes to like silly jokes or or, or certain f- phrases or some specific stuff uh but most of the time doesn't affect the creative process much for the developers in our case we did have to turn down quite a few games because because of the setting or, or the narrative they were like oh my god this game is really cool but like we we can't publish it in China. Like it's just uh, it's, it's too much. But you know the de- uh, the developers that made that game, they still released it and it did well. Didn't do well in China for for, for the reasons. Uh, but it did well everywhere else. So in our case, yeah, it it affects our um, you know choices when it comes to publishing games because we always have to look like you know the Western publishing, and we also need to look how this game will do in China and you know how how it will be received. So that affects us, but when it comes to like developers themselves, um, no, they're they're pretty much free to do uh, what they uh, what they want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, but if it, if they can't find a publisher, then um, they will also start kind of creating the kind of content that they know they can publish as the market matures here. I mean, right now, when it comes to China, I. Again, because of a whole blockade and, and and the censorship and stuff like that, and because it's so super hard, like no nobody's really thinking much when it comes to you know I'm gonna make a tailored game for the Chinese market because it's so hard to penetrate right now. 
um, that we, you're just better off not doing that. Uh, of course, if you want to make a game specifically for the Chinese market, you can, but uh, there's no reason to do it right now because the, 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 the approval process is frozen, so you don't get any benefits of it being on any local platforms or anything. That's all the time we have for this episode of Digi Taiwan. Tune in next week for more digital art and entertainment in Taiwan. For everything environment, it's Climate Crunch with Harrison Kay. Hello and welcome to Climate Crunch, Radio Taiwan International show covering everything related to the climate and environmentalism here in Taiwan. I'm Harrison Kay, and for the next five minutes, I'll be bringing you the latest on what's been going on in Taiwan's natural world. This week, I'll be taking a look at the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing and their impact on the climate. The 2022 Winter Olympic Games are coming to an end this weekend in China. The Games have been surrounded by huge amounts of controversy, from diplomatic boycotts over human rights concerns to complaints over a Taiwanese athlete wearing a uniform with China written on it. One large area of controversy is the environmental impact of the Games. Beijing is the first city to host both the Summer and Winter Olympic Games, but that doesn't mean it's a city that's particularly well-suited to hosting the Winter Olympics in a sustainable way. The organising committee for the Games claim that they're the greenest Games that the world has ever seen, the 26 venues for the Olympics, including the training venues, all run on renewable energy. But behind this front of an eco-friendly Winter Games lies other uncomfortable facts about their climate impact that seems to counter these claims of sustainability. The biggest point of contention with the environmental impact Olympic Games is the huge amounts of artificial snow that have been created to support the events. The National Alpine Ski Centre in Yanqing had only 2 centimetres of snow between January and March last year. Yet this is the venue for downhill skiing. The venue for cross-country skiing, ski jumping and snowboarding events in Zhangjiakou also receives little snow, a fact that the International Olympic Committee picked up on in 2015 when China made their bid for the Games. Altogether, the Games have used about 49 million gallons of water to make the artificial snow needed. In Yangqing, 200 snow cannons connected to a reservoir by pipes were used to shoot out the artificial snow. The north of China, particularly in Beijing, has experienced water shortages for many years. Despite having 20% of the world's population, China has only 6% of the world's freshwater resources, and most of the groundwater resources are found in South China, not in the north where the Olympics are. There are also concerns about the location of some of the Olympic venues, particularly the National Alpine Ski Center. In 1985, the Songshan National Nature Reserve was founded in order to protect the forests there. The nature reserve is a 90-minute drive from Beijing and has many rare species of animals in it, such as the golden eagle, imperial eagle, golden leopard and black stork, making it a place of great ecological importance. However, when China made their bid for the Olympics, they redrew the boundaries of the nature reserve to clear out a core area to build a ski centre on. It had previously been illegal to enter the core area of the reserve without prior research permission from the government. Yet, these rules were thrown out in order to build a ski slope on the Shaohai Tuol mountain, which is the second highest in Beijing. At the time, many people both in China and abroad took issue with this due to its impact on the natural ecosystems in the park 
and the 180 species of animals found there. However, such criticism was quickly shut down in China and dismissed by the International Olympic Committee, and so the building of the ski slope went ahead. As with all other large events, there are also other climate impacts such as the huge number of international flights required and the impacts brought about by the pandemic such as a huge number of PCR tests, masks and rapid tests that all generate large amounts of waste. Of course, these issues are not unique to the Beijing Olympics. The previous Winter Olympics in Seoul also used large amounts of artificial snow. Climate change is partly to blame, as less and less cities have the right conditions needed to host the Games. Research shows that by the end of the century, there's a risk that only one city worldwide, Sapporo in Japan, will be suitable to host the Winter Olympics if global warming continues at the high level that it's at now. Questions therefore had to be raised about the degree to which the Games are helping to bring about this decline. As with every Olympic Games since Taiwan began competing under the name Chinese Taipei in 1984, there have been calls to allow Taiwanese athletes to compete under the name of Taiwan under the Taiwanese flag. However, it's possible that in a few decades, it won't matter what name Taiwan wants to compete under, because the Winter Olympics will simply become too unsustainable to hold. That's all we have time for this week. Until next time, it's been Climate Crunch with me, Harrison Kay, for Radio Taiwan International. For all your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with The Download. Welcome to the download from Radio Taiwan International, where we cover all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Dash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. Today, I continue my conversation with Scott Persner from the Taiwan Wild Bird Federation. Scott tells me why he fell in love with birding, and how one Taiwanese man rediscovered a bird scientists once thought was extinct. All that, coming up on the download. know if you've heard of the christmas bird count i haven't okay <laughs> it was started it was started in the states and actually now it's in a bunch of different countries where you take the day in order to count all the birds that you could count essentially <laughs> in different that's areas your festive your festive thing to do well i mean some some people run and jump into the sea or you know yours is uh to count the birds <laughs> well the it actually came from because of people used to hunt birds right for christmas so this one guy i forgot his name he went ahead and he decided that he was going to change it and so, so instead of hunting birds, he was going to count the birds. And so this was in the early 1900s. It might have been 1900. I forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it developed into this thing. And now in Taiwan, it, the idea caught on. But the problem was that Christmas isn't as big of a holiday here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is there a Lunar New Year kind of uh, alternative? Or you just you just got to remind people that it's Christmas because otherwise they'll forget. Well, no, that's why we call it the New Year bird count. Oh, I see. Right. So, so you the, just go to the, the right. Right. Okay. So what, how it works is that you know it's from mid-December until mid-January each year, and with using you know January first as a midpoint as such. And so the point is to go ahead and try and uh, count uh, the birds in certain areas. And so there are certain uh, you know sites for doing the surveys. And so we coordinate with you know our partners as well as you know other groups that are interested in doing it. And um, and so they do the counts, and then all that data is also then put onto eBird, but we also come out with the reports. So I, mean, I guess, you know, you're, you're kind of talking maybe uh, getting people kind of involved in this thing. I mean, mm. when, I mean how, did you, how did your own interest in, in, in birding kind of come about? 
Uh, from from working, I guess. I've been working with birds and bird conservation for over 15 years now. So were you work were you kind of was it is it accurate to say that you were working in bird conservation before your kind of real passion for birding started or is or did it come from a much earlier uh i think that they kind of grew together in fact but uh it was actually like after i had uh, graduated from univer from college that you know that i started to work and get more actively involved in it and so i was working in alaska Oh, wow. the yeah. uh, and different birds, many different birds. <laughs> yeah. Although Alaska is the farthest point of the, you know, the East Asia Australasian flyway. So one species, definitely the bar-tailed godwit, is also found in, in Taiwan. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, it comes it, a long way. It does. Actually, it's, it's, it comes really long way. It goes all the way down to, to New Zealand. It's, it's, a, it's a quite a, a, a amazing. That's, birds have amazing migration. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> uh, and so I was working over there. I got to work with the birds. I was an avian intern at the time, all the way back in. <laughs> That's a great title. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> avian intern. <laughs> Trust me. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so from, from being that, and I started to work more with a bird species because at the time I was interested in biology and doing conservation, but I didn't necessarily have a specific animal species that I personally was going to be uh, studying. And then I got the opportunity to work with the birds there. And then that just took me down this this path that's uh yeah yeah it's a different story that's a different story <laughs> yeah. so i mean how would you uh let's say you're looking at me and you're like i i express an interest and i, I want to get involved in this how how would i go about doing that well i mean one of the things that you could definitely do is you could just find your local bird society granted i know that you know uh, a lot of them don't aren't necessarily have all the information in english but you know there there are people there and they are passionate and they are, would be interested to go ahead and help you find a way and actually wild bird society of taipei has a lot of information and they even do bird walks you know they they do uh, they do walks just about every week or so and you know, so that's kind of a and it's free that, <laughs> so that's kind of like a weekend people would get together and maybe and, and walk in like wetlands i, I imagine or yeah well, like you that. would be walking wetlands or foothills or maybe you know going up into the hills a little bit but at least for the wild bird state of taipei events there there's are usually in taipei a new taipei city but actually each one of our partners does something different and you know, so you know like our wild bird site of nanto you know they'll be in puli and then they'll go around and uh, they'll also look at the species that are over there the uh, our partner in Taichung, like they'll go up to Dashuishan scenic area, which, you know, gets up to those different elevations mm. and has different species. And they had something like 50 people take part in their NYBC count. Right. So the thing is, I guess, just... Uh, I mean, with that, that number of people, surely you're scaring away a <laughs> number of birds. Well, that's actually one of the cool things about birding in Taiwan, though, yeah. is you don't have to trek all the way into the woods or up, up mountains for days in order to find species. Because Taiwan is so small, a lot of it can be roadside. And so it's actually very easily and accessible, mm. uh, which is, I think, another thing that's a very positive factor for being able to do birding and bird watching in, in Taiwan. I mean, I found it really funny. Uh, I went to the States back in November, December, and then I came back and I did the 777. So for my second week of quarantine, I was like, I had my balcony and I had my birds because there's a nice tree right <laughs> oh, there. Right, right, and right. so every day <laughs> I was able like, to... What's out there today? Yeah. And so you, you, on your on your laptop there, you've got a Taiwan barbit, right. which is a really cool little endemic that's got five colors. And there were a couple of them. And so I would just watch them. And there were, you know, 14 or 15 species that I was able to go ahead and see. Wow. Mm, so mm. There's th these things are really, you don't have to go far to look for them. No, like uh, for my family, you know, in the in the States, they might have a feeder or something like that. And they'll be like, is there really feeder culture in Taiwan? It's like, not really. Mm. Mostly, well, for a couple of reasons. One is there aren't really front yards 
for right. a lot of houses yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, or yeah, backyards. Absolutely. And the other is that nature is actually very, very close. You could see anywhere between like 50 something and 100 and something different species in Jinmen. And what's interesting is, you know, when, when I talk about Taiwan, it's usually discussing just Taiwan proper. But actually, Jimen and Matsu are, are also really great for birding and also bird watching because they have very different species that might not be here. And I'm not sure if you see my mask here. <laughs> yeah. I've, got, I've got a Chinese crested tern on it. And um, I was telling you the story earlier, but Chinese crested tern is actually the world's most endangered seabird. Oh, wow. There's only around 100 of them in the world. They were thought to be extinct from 1937 until about the year 2000. And they were only rediscovered when a Taiwanese director of a, of a bird documentary that they were trying to make for the, for the general population of, of Matsu because it only recently opened up. It used to be only military. Right. But right, they were right, trying right. to open it up and trying to get people to appreciate, you know, the nature and better understand that as, you know, as an education outreach tool. And he discovered that one of the terns looked different from the others because they stay in these flocks of thousands of uh, greater crest, great crested uh, terns. And so they, he discovered the uh, black, uh, yeah, the black tip on the bill, oh, wow. and the fact that the wings are a little bit different. And so the Chinese crested tern came out of nowhere. They're and, hiding in plain sight. Yeah. <laughs> and so now it's been in, in Chinese they call it the the mythical bird because it kind of reemerged. I mean that's incredible because I mean, you know, I can understand uh, in my head that oh sure there's lots of species we haven't discovered in you know the, in the rainforests mm. or. Or, you know, maybe we think this kind of species of fly has gone extinct. And you're mm. like, okay, well, you know, even if it hasn't, we're probably not going to notice. But <laughs> you think with something as big as a bird, <laughs> uh, you you might spot it. You might, someone, it, it, it's, it's incredible that it took that long for people to kind of realize. Well, what's, what, I mean, like you said, it's kind of pl hiding in plain sight. And if you've ever talked to a birder about certain kinds of birds like gulls or warblers, oftentimes they kind of look similar. Right, right, <laughs> you right, know, right, like right. there's a, there's a phrase in, uh, uh, you know, amongst the birder community, called it like was an LBJ, a, a little brown job. Right. It's like it's no, it's one of those. It's one of them. Yeah, it's a warbler. Like I'd, I'd have to kind of take a picture. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And they only rediscovered that that only discovered that it was that species after having taken the footage back right. and noticed that it was something different. And this just set off, wow, all this kind of uh, a big discussion amongst, you know, the ornithological community. Yeah. And so now it's quite a quite a thing. And, and so Penghu actually also has a few breeding um, uh, Chinese crested tern. And, but Taiwan is around 15 to 20 percent now wow. of the breeding population <laughs> because it's only around, you know, it's only around 100, 100 birds, give or take. So yeah, it's kind of incredible yeah. that uh, that there's so much uh, bird diversity and and uh, and yeah, and things going on here. And that's all we have time for this week. But if you want to get involved in birding in Taiwan, you can contact Taiwan Wild Bird Federation through their Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And they'll be happy to show you the ropes. But that's it from me today. Next week, I speak to the co-founder of one of Taiwan's biggest startups, the app company Pick Collage. That's next week with me, Stash Butler, on the download. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. The U.S. House of Representatives recently passed the America Competes Act, which has many clauses about Taiwan. One of them 
calls for the Secretary of State to begin talks with Taiwan about changing the name of Taiwan's office in the U.S. from the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office to the Taiwan Representative Office. And today I speak with Voice of America Asia reporter Chris Cascajo about what that represents. I ask him if this signals a new policy towards Taiwan. It's not a new thing. Uh, I, I've spoken to a couple of Taiwan analysts, and Taiwan has pushed for this since the 90s. Uh, the office was actually originally called the Coordination Council for North American Affairs, which is kind of a cumbersome name, and nobody really knew what the office did. So Taiwan has been pushing for this for years. It's just seemed to have gained bipartisan support in the House and Senate because some analysts believe that it's a very easy way to show support for Taiwan without fundamentally changing the U.S. policy toward Taiwan, which is one of strategic ambiguity, as we well know. But uh, before, it seems that the U.S. would be wary about angering China with such a move. So why do you think there's a move towards uh, more clear support for Taiwan diplomatically? Some of it is the timing. Uh, some analysts believe that the timing of introducing this legislation is to take the heat off Lithuania, which agreed to establish a diplomatic office in its capital. Um, and, of course, China got angry with that and halted beef exports and did some other you know, economic coercion moves. So it could be a way for uh, lawmakers to say that they stand with Taiwan and they're fully prepared for China to respond as it usually does when it comes to these things. How do you think China might respond if the U.S. does change the name of the office? Well, it would, it would definitely aggravate China. There, there's no question about that. But I don't think that that really is something that the U.S. is concerned about because it's done a lot of things to aggravate China lately by highlighting its human rights abuses in Xinjiang mm -hmm. of the, the Uyghur population with a diplomatic boycott of the, the games leading several nations in that. So, you know, this would be just another example of, you know, the U.S. doing what is in the U.S. interest and letting the chips fall where they may when it comes to China's response, which would expectedly be one of opposition, and they will publicly state that opposition. So how would you characterize how U.S. policy towards China is changing? You know, it seems that there's been a shift in the past several years from we want to do business with China and we want access to China's lucrative markets to being much more aware of some of the unsavory things that China is doing, uh, whether it's a not forthright response to the origins of COVID, the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and then also the declining press freedoms in Hong Kong. So I think there is definitely a sense in the U.S. that a more economically well-off China was not necessarily going to be a freer China. And I think that's something that lawmakers, both Democratic and Republicans, see crystal clear now. So there were some illusions before that perhaps a freer economy in China would lead to more freedom politically. I think so. And that definitely was the case. I was working in Seattle and a large percentage of its trade came directly from China. And, and that seemed to be the attitude that, you know, we're, we're doing good things. You know, we're sourcing goods uh, at lower labor costs from China but we're providing marketing jobs, you know, for our workers. And, 
you know, that's definitely changed in the past few years. So America has actually, I mean, the Congress has actually passed two different acts, uh, similar, one in the Senate, one in the House, about competition with China, basically. The American Compete Act is basically to raise U.S. competitiveness towards China. How do you think American perceptions of China and Taiwan have changed in recent years? Well, the analysts I talk to think that they go together as the as a more negative perception of China emerges because of some of the things that it's doing that we've already discussed. A more positive image of Taiwan emerges because Taiwan is one of the democracy success stories in Asia and that they have a lot of the same values that we do as far as democratically elected government. And then also, you know, what's been a shining example that we frankly have not followed in the U.S. is Taiwan's response to the COVID pandemic and keeping cases relatively low and isolating the cases that have emerged. So that's something that we definitely could look to uh, in the future because these kinds of pandemics are not going away. In fact, you know, many researchers predict that there will be just more and more of these animal to human coronaviruses that emerge. Oh, that's not a good thing. <laughs> You're at working at home right now, correct? Because of the pandemic. Right. Oh, the, the other thing is uh, Taiwan is now our eighth largest trading partner. There's also a benefit to, to stronger trade agreements with Taiwan because of that. That's a very high ranking. Do you think that the U.S. will move forward with a bilateral trade agreement um, with closer, freer trade ties with Taiwan? It's hard to say because, you know, even when you look at the America Competes Act, it passed with wide Democratic support, and then there was a version, you know, that was called something else that passed with wide Republican support late last year. So now they're in the process of reconciling those bills, you know. But to get, you know, Democrats and Republicans in the states to agree on anything is just, it's, it's, it's such a hard sell, especially as we are approaching midterm elections this fall, you know, which could decide control of Congress. I think it's something that they agree to in principle, but, you know, what what sort of agreement that they would come up with, you know, we'll see. <laughs> hmm. I was surprised to see that the new bill called for the renaming of Taipei Economic and Cultural Office uh, in, in the U.S. to Taiwan Representative Office. It, it is a kind of provocative move from China's perspective. It's a provocative move. Um, from any other perspective, it seems pretty normal to, to have your office named after the country that it represents. Do you think it will happen for sure? And, and when do you think it would happen? Well, the thing about the um, renaming of the office, that act, it would not direct a name change. It would just put it on the agenda of the Secretary of State, who's current, currently Anthony Blinken, and the White House. Mm -hmm. So whatever change would be up to them. And... The Biden administration had sig signified several months ago that, that it was in favor of the change, but, you know, since this Taiwan Representative Office Act was introduced, the White House hasn't commented publicly on it. So, you know, whether their position has changed in the past few months, you know, we just don't know. The American Competes Act it says, I have the wording right here, because I, I was so curious about this, I looked it up. It says oh, okay. the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office is inaptly named as it works to cultivate the extensive, close, and friendly commercial, cultural, and other relations between the people of the United States and the people, organizations, and enterprises of Taiwan, not merely Taipei. 
And then it calls on the Secretary of State. It says, negotiations to rename TECRO reflective of the substantively deepening ties between Taiwan and the United States. The Secretary of State shall seek to enter into negotiations with appropriate officials of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in the United States with the objective of renaming its office in Washington, D.C., the Taiwan Representative Office in the U.S., and its subsidiary offices in the U.S. accordingly. Okay, it's saying here, a Secretary of State shall seek to enter into <coughs> negotiations with the objective of renaming the office. So what kind of mandate is that? Does that mean that he has to rename the office, or does he mean he just has to put this on his agenda and, and talk with uh, Taiwan officials about it? It's my understanding, you know, and from talking to some Taiwan analysts, that it just puts it on his agenda. Okay. You can't force him to do it. <laughs> right. Basically. But it's something that he would have to look at closely. And, you know, it, it, uh, it, it, if it's something that enjoys wide bipartisan support, it's kind of putting political pressure, mm. you know, frankly, mm -hmm. to, to do it. And it's, you know, it's the one area that, that seems, you know, of this bill that, that, that has bipartisan support, you know, because some of the Republican opposition to the rest of it, Republicans are historically against using federal money for private enterprise. So that's why the America Competes Act passed largely along party lines. I think one congressperson from each party defected and, you know, voted either for or against it. But it was pretty much along party lines. But the idea of using Taiwan in the name of the office, you know, is something that, that definitely has bipartisan support. And one of the other things that I should add is analysts have told me that this could provide cover for other smaller countries who might want to establish uh, diplomatic relations with Taiwan. You know, sort of that whole, well, you know, the U.S. It would give them cover, right? Oh, that's right. That's why China is so afraid of things like this. Right, right, right. right. I mean, right. it reacted so... So it's not only solidarity with, it's not only solidarity with, with Lithuania with the timing of it, it's also would give cover to smaller countries. And there's also a Taiwan Representative Office Act. That's different, right? That's basically is calling for the change of the name? Yep. Again, that, that would not mean the name would automatically change. It would just put it on the Secretary of State's agenda. Well, that's you know, the same, it, same thing. But it would then. also pull it. Yeah. It just, uh, it, it just seems like they just took this part of the America Competes Act and made it a standalone bill. I see. So basically it is saying that Congress would like to see this happen and, and they're asking the Secretary of State to begin Correct. talks Correct. about it. Correct. But they cannot direct Correct. But, the results of the talks. Right. But as I said uh, you know, just a few moments ago, the Biden administration did signal that it would be in favor of such a move, but this was, you know, we're going on several months now. You know, and we, you know, I suppose we could also talk a little bit more about the America Competes Act and, and you know, what, what it would mean in terms of U.S. competitiveness with China. Some of the analysts I talked with say that our, our focus has been too much on slowing China down and not enough on how we, the U.S. can outrun China. So they describe this America Competes Act as a start, but there are areas where we're never going to catch up to China. You know, we're a little bit behind in um, 5G networks around the globe that Huawei is building, you know, but we can certainly get a head start on 6G 
and then also with the semiconductor manufacturing, you know, we're never going to catch up to TSMC, but we can take steps to make sure that the U.S. strengthens its supply chain so it's not as reliant on one or two countries for these, you know, chips that are so important to many products, whether it's cars, computers, cell phones, whatever. So it's basically uh, upgrading the U.S.'s competitiveness in, in high technology, right? Correct. And directing more resources to research and manufacturing in the U.S. Because, you know, I think lawmakers from both parties can agree that there really wasn't a good idea, you know, to have the supply chain for so many tech giants so dependent on China and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the way the industry uh, played out, right? So I think that the U.S. wants to correct its strategy in that area. It's, it's quite obvious, right? They want to course correct, but they're behind several years in a lot of the areas. So the question is whether they'll ever catch up or even surpass or if they'll just be able to somewhat level the playing field. Is it, do you think there's a lot of anxiety in um, the U.S. about China? I wouldn't say that there's a lot of anxiety. I think most eyes are on what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, the thing about U.S. news consumers is they care about things when they're personally affected. So they care about China and Taiwan to the extent that new cars aren't available because of the chip shortages and that the price of used cars has gone way up because of the supply chain issues. There's more of a sense of economic nationalism. That was Chris Cascajo, a journalist at Voice of America Asia, giving us his perspectives on the recently passed America Competes Act and the clauses about Taiwan renaming its office to the Taiwan Representative Office. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. The Sound of the Amish Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Thank you for tuning in to Radio Taiwan International, Taiwan's national broadcaster. We hope you enjoyed our programs. You can catch all of our latest news, audio, and video features on our website at en.rti.org.tw. Again, go to our website, en.rti.org.tw, for engaging news, videos, and programs about Taiwan. If you'd like to hang out on social media, RTI is there too. Our Facebook URL is Radio Taiwan International. And you can watch our engaging video features, including the weekly news magazine program, Taiwan Insider, on our YouTube channel, RTI English. Again, our YouTube channel is RTI English. For those who enjoy the Twitter sphere, our handle for Taiwan Insider is at Taiwan Insider. For RTI English, it's at Radio Taiwan underscore ENG. And if you'd like to enjoy us on your smartphone, 
Just download our app, RTI to go. That's one of the best ways to enjoy all our news, videos, and programs. That's RTI to go. If you're a shortwave listener, we have two channels in Asia. For South Asia, tune into 6100 kilohertz from 1600 to 1700 UTC. To Southeast Asia, you can hear us on 15320 kilohertz from 0300 to 0400 UTC. We would love to know what you think of our programs. Email us at English at rti.org.tw. Thank you again for tuning in to Radio Taiwan International.